Good morning. My name is Ian Hammond, and I am your RUF International Campus Minister at Northwestern. I uh, love my job throughout the week. I love welcoming international students with hospitality and exploring the gospel with them, and I always look forward to being with you on Sunday. So thank you so much for your partnership in the gospel, and thanks for having me bring the word this morning. Uh, Before we dive in, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Our great God, you have given us everything that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our prayer this morning is by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to see just that. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we just read from the book of Hebrews, which is a unique book in a few ways. Uh, It doesn't have like this personal introduction as New Testament letters normally do. And the author describes what he has written to us. He says, this is a a word of exhortation. And so as you read this book, you kind of get a sense of a clear progression of thought. This book was probably read in one meeting uh, in its entirety. And as you read the book, you can see that the author assumes that you know a lot about the Old Testament. And so it appears that what we have here is like a sermon that was written to this early group of Hebrew Christians. And as you read this book, you learn a little bit about these people. They are living in a time of persecution. Some scholars think this is Christians in Rome and the persecution they're living under is Nero. We can't be sure about that because because of the first 300 years of the church, there were these waves of persecution. But we do know some things about these people. Some of them have had their property confiscated. Others have been placed into prison, but none have been murdered as of yet. And so as you read this, you might find some difficulty identifying with these early church Christians because of the persecution that they're experiencing. But you know, this has always been the case throughout church history. Persecution and pain is never evenly dispersed across people, across places, or even across time. In fact, the chapter we, that comes before the one we just read is called the, uh, the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And it's this list of like Old Testament saints. And the author is, is setting them as examples for us to follow. And he says, in one breath, by faith, some conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, and escaped the edge of the sword. And in the next breath, he says, by faith, some were sawn in two. Some died by the edge of the sword. And he commends both groups of these Christians for walking by faith because they ran the race that the Lord Jesus set before them. One by faith conquered and one by faith suffered. And this morning, I do not know what the Lord has placed before you. But we do know some things. We know that we live in between the time of Christ's ascension in his return at the end of the age. And the Bible says that this age requires of every Christian endurance. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 36 says, You have need of endurance so that you might receive what is promised. Endurance is not optional for the Christian. It is necessary. Uh, we, have, uh, we will not receive what God has promised apart from endurance. Jesus himself actually spoke of endurance in his parable of the sower and the seeds. 
he said that a sower went out and sowed some seeds of the gospel along the path. And he says these seeds were quickly taken up by Satan. He says he sowed some other seeds on the rocky ground. This soil represents those who receive the word initially, but when persecution comes, they fall away because they have no root in themselves. And then he says, some were sowed among the thorns. And for these, the cares of this life, the love of riches, choke out the word. But then he says, the seed of the word that is sowed on good soil bears good fruit. Those are those who receive the word and truly believe it and endure unto everlasting life. And so what I want to consider this morning is how to endure. We have to do it, so we need to know how we are going to endure in the Christian life. And the preacher of the Hebrews uh, directs us away from ourselves this morning to three places that we can find grace and help to endure in this Christian life. He says we must consider the Lord Jesus, we must consider the Father And we must strengthen one another. Let's look at these three things together this morning. First, consider Jesus. Look with me beginning in verse 3. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In this verse, the author is wanting to bring to mind the outrageous hostility that Jesus experienced. Why was the hostility against Jesus outrageous? Because he was literally the spotless Lamb of God. He did no wrong. He was the only perfectly righteous, perfectly good, perfectly innocent man to walk the face of the earth since the fall of Adam into sin. And yet even he had to endure. You know, from the very start, Jesus and his family, they were on the run as Herod tried to kill them. When Jesus entered into his public ministry and was preaching with authority and performing miracles, they said he did it by the power of the devil. When Jesus graciously ate with sinners and outcasts, they called him a drunkard and a glutton. When he showed compassion to the outsider, they said he was a Samaritan. After Jesus spent years training his disciples, he was disgracefully betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve. He was slandered by the Sanhedrin. He was used as a political pawn by Pilate. Soldiers mercilessly mocked and flogged him. And he had a crown of thorns beat into his head. And even as he is being crucified in open shame, the gospel writer says, insults were heaped upon him. And yet, Jesus endured. And now the preacher says, in your struggle, consider him. Why? Because not only did Jesus endure the greatest injustice to ever take place, he did this for you. He did this for you. It was in his enduring of hostility that we who have been united to Christ by faith have our sins paid for. What we see when we see the hostility of Christ is we see our sins being paid for by his blood. And this puts things into perspective, doesn't it? This is the great exchange of the gospel. This is the great exchange. In Christ's shame, 
we find glory. In Christ suffering, we find peace. In Christ death, we find everlasting life. It is clear that the Lord God has not required of us more than he has given for us already in the person of his son. This is what he hints at in verse 4. He says this. He says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Christ's blood was shed. His suffering was limitless. And knowing this protects us from falling into the destructive power, the destructive power of, of self-pity. He knows the preacher says not to consider the hostility. He says, consider him who endured such hostility. In verse 2 of this chapter, which is not printed for you here, it says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews wants us to see the outcome of Christ's endurance. His place could not be more different. Where there was shame, there is now glory. Where there was weakness, there is now strength. Where there was sorrow, there is now joy. Jesus' descent to the bottom, in the end, was his path to the top. And this is likewise true for you who believe. And so the preacher calls them and us not to surrender, but to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the outcome of his endurance and thus our own. Consider his outrageous suffering on our behalf so that we might not grow weary, grow faint-hearted, and give up. Second, he says, consider the Father. Now, it is abundantly clear in verse 5 and following that the Lord designs, among other things, struggle against hostility for the discipline of his people. How, why do you have to endure? Why do you have to endure? Verse 7 says it plainly. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now the discipline of God is probably one of the least understood doctrines in the scripture today. And I imagine that there are several reasons why this is the case. Uh, some of us are confused. I'm a new parent. I'm confused. Um, and not sure how we're supposed to discipline our children. Some of us just were not disciplined well when we were kids. And some of us might even be skeptical that it's loving to discipline kids. This mindset, however, is very foreign to the mind of the biblical authors. In fact, the presence of discipline is evidence of love. So verse 5, verse 5 asks, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. You know, one of the greatest privileges of living after the first coming of our Lord Jesus is that our relationship with God is most principally understood in terms of family. Think about this. When God set out to make a covenant with his people Israel, he gives Moses his covenant name, Yahweh which is the, translated as Lord in our Bibles. And this name for God is used over 6,000 times. It is his special name. When Jesus comes, however, with the new covenant, it seems as if he has take, God has taken to himself a new name. 
when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say to, what did he say, to say? He said, our Father who is in heaven. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? Give glory to your Father. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. Your Father will forgive you. Your Father gives good gifts. In every letter almost that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church, he greets the church by saying this, Grace to you from God, our Father. Though the Old Testament certainly depicts Israel as the sons of God and God as the Father to Israel, the title Father is used of God only 15 times in the entire Old Testament. What had been exceedingly rare has become the dominant way of addressing God. Who is God? God is our Heavenly Father. And fathers who love their children discipline them. Verse 7 says this, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. To teach his people about discipline, the preacher quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 in verses 5 and 6 of this passage. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In the Bible, discipline can be understood in kind of two ways. One is correction and the other is training. Discipline can be Uh, It can be reproof and chastisement on the one hand, and then it can be uh, training and preparation on the other. In high school, I played on our football team, and if you came late to practice, you knew that the first thing that you had to do was run two big laps around the football field. This was the way our coach reproved us, chastised us for being late to practice. Later in practice, however, the whole team might run some laps around that same field. And this wasn't for reproof. This was for training. This was for preparation. This was to harden us for the test of the game. This was to give us the fitness and character and resolve to compete, to meet the challenge to win. And when done in the right spirit by the coach and received with the right attitude by the players, Both the discipline of correction and the discipline of training served us very well. And when we think of how God relates to his people, we see that he both corrects and he trains. In the book of Judges, God would chastise Israel when they drifted into idolatry by putting foreign nations over them to bring them to repentance. And the preacher to the Hebrew says, even Christ Jesus was made a perfect high priest through what he endured. The Lord Jesus was trained for his role of being our empathetic high priest by suffering hostility and by uh, enduring. Now, in the context of our passage, the preacher has mainly in view the discipline of training. The Hebrews are experiencing what they're experiencing not because of their faithlessness, but because of their faithfulness. And what he wants them to understand is that God has designed this struggle for them, for their discipline, for their training. And with this, he wants them to be encouraged. 
bolstered, emboldened because the discipline of the Father is indisputable proof that they are indeed children of God and their Father in heaven loves them. Now, another possible reason we may be averse to the discipline of God is that we have experienced personally terribly sinful and selfish discipline in the past. Now, if this is the case, the discipline of the Lord should come as a tremendous contrast. But for those who have experienced the loving discipline of a father or a father figure, verse 9 makes good sense. It says this, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. When I was a teenager, a part of my household duties became the upkeep of our yard. And so when the grass grew tall, I would hop on the lawnmower with a cold ice drink in hand, and I would, like, enjoy the ride, you know. I didn't mind too much the summer and spring yard work, but what I did not like was the fall. Because the fall meant that I had to rake leaves into piles and discard them. And man, I hated raking leaves. To me, this seems like a pointless and impossible task. Our yard would literally be filled and overflown with leaves. And in a matter of days, there would just be more leaves. But this was my responsibility. So before I could go meet with my friends one day, I had to go out and complete this neglected task. And so I, like, run out the door and, like, grab the lake and rake and very haphazardly rake up some leaves. And as I'm about to set out to see my friends, my father comes out to inspect my work. And so when I look out into the yard, I see all of the, like, yellow grass. But for some reason, when he looks out into the yard, he sees all the brown leaves. And there were leaves practically everywhere. But I moped and I complained, but my dad handed me the rake. And then he picked up one himself, and we raked the yard together. And then afterwards, as we're looking at that clean yard, he says to me, Ian, one day you will have to learn, if you want success in whatever you do, you have to become a man of character, a man of integrity, a man of diligence. And man, those words still ring in my ears to this day. We respect fathers who lovingly discipline us. And so the preacher asked, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? You know, God's discipline, unlike our earthly father's discipline, it is always good, always wise, always done out of love and not selfishness. And it's always done so that we might live in the fullest sense of the term. But maybe the greatest hesitancy we have about this idea of discipline is that discipline is painful. Verse 11 says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline discipline is painful, not pleasant. I hated running those laps with my teammates. I hated raking those leaves. In the moment, but I am very grateful for it now. Through running those laps, I learned that difficult things lead to victory. Through raking those leaves, I learned that hard work pays off. What a blessing, what a tremendous blessing, wise and loving fatherly discipline is to their children. 
And this is even truer when it comes to our relationship with God. Because his discipline leads to righteousness, and righteousness leads to the fruit of peace. You know, the discipline of the Lord is why the Apostle Paul can say in the book of Philippians, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, sometimes you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. God designed struggle for Paul so that he could say to us with great confidence, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He could say this because he had that peace. He had that peace that surpassed understanding and even circumstances. So most of us this morning, we're not facing what Paul faced. We're not even facing what the Hebrews faced. But following Jesus is always a struggle. It's a struggle against sin. It's a struggle against the devil. It's a struggle against this world. And God designs and uses our struggles for discipline. And so the question is, is how are you understanding your struggle? How are you understanding your life in this age? So this moves us to our final point, which is strengthen one another. Now, I think there are generally two temptations that we face in this age. And both are kind of strategies to avoid the pain of the Father's discipline instead of being trained by it. And the first one is accommodation. If the world's opposition is the cause of our pain, we just accommodate ourselves to the demands and the pain stops. If being a public Christian is costly, we go private. We may even kind of keep it a secret or, you know, even worse, we may deny Christ before men. If the pressure is too great, we end up celebrating and participating in things that dishonors God and our fellow image bearers. We adopt the spirit of the age and we seek the approval of our, our colleagues. We accommodate. Second, we are tempted to incivility. If the world's opposition is the cause of our pain, what we need to do is just give them a taste of their own medicine. And they'll stop inflicting us. You know, we may imitate our favorite political talk show or commentators. Mockery becomes a habit. We operate under the principle that the ends justify the means. We don't treat others the way we like to be treated. We treat them the way they're treating us. We don't bless those who curse us. We curse those who cursed us. For how else will they learn? You know, as you read the book of Acts... One of the most striking things about this is as they are engaging their opponents, they are doing so with tremendous faithfulness and civility. Paul in Acts 26 is standing before the king. He is giving testimony. He is answering the accusation that he defiled the temple. And he says to the king, the real reason I'm on trial today is because I have encountered the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, and he sent me to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in his name. And it is obedience to this mission that the Lord gave me that has upset the Jewish leadership. And imagine this. Right at that moment when all the eyes are on Paul, in front of everyone, Festus, this governor under King Agrippa, yells out with a loud voice, Paul, 
you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. I kind of imagine Paul with like a flushed red face at this moment. How embarrassing, how infuriating. And yet Paul's response is this. He simply replies, I am not out of my mind, O most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. Here we have a man doing his best to honor those God has placed over him and speaking an unpopular truth with boldness. Instead of accommodation or incivility, the preacher calls us to receive our struggle as loving discipline of our Father and thus be trained by it. And we do that by two ways, strengthening and straightening. In verse 12 he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Here I kind of picture the the boxer in the ring, you know, his hands are by his side, his knees are wobbling, he's tired, he's discouraged, he's oppressed by his opponent, he's just about to give in. And then the trainer yells from the corner, get your hands up, stand firm, strengthen yourself, the victory is yours. In Isaiah, this is where actually the imagery comes from of drooping hands and weak knees. In Isaiah, God is speaking to Israel, and he says to them, Strengthen yourself, because I am about to come back, and I'm going to restore your glory. I'm going to defeat your enemies. Effectively, he's saying, Don't give up. Don't give in. All you must do is press on to win. And this is truer for us, because the Lord God has already come. He's come in the person of his son. He has already secured our redemption. The victory has been won. So all we must do is walk by faith until our victor himself comes again. And in verse 13 he says, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Make straight paths for your feet is a metaphor for walking down the path to salvation. It's the path of holiness the preacher would go on to say. He says, there is a holiness without which one will not see the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that in your struggle, we must resist the compromise, resist the temptation to compromise our beliefs and our behavior. We are to stay devoted to Christ above all else. Why is this important? Because at the end of this path, he says, is healing. You know, many of us enjoy nostalgia. We look at old pictures, we tell old stories, we may even look back at a particular stage of life and we might say, man, that was the best of times. That was when life is good as it gets. Maybe for you it's childhood when like the worries of work and the future didn't like keep you up at night. Or maybe it was when you were in college and you were young and beautiful. Maybe it was the birth of your first child. I don't know what it is for you, but... We look back and we say somewhat sorrowfully, the best has come and it has passed. Or maybe you're here this morning and you look back at those stages of life and they weren't what you wanted them to be. And so you're disappointed. Or, or maybe you're here this morning and you're looking into the future and in your opinion things look very dim. And you know this certainly may be the case for the unbeliever. But this is never the case for the believer. The best is always yet to come. You know, the greatness of what lies ahead of us kind of escapes description. 
But the word healing approximates it. When the Lord Jesus comes back, we will be healed fully and finally. We will be spiritually healed, emotionally healed, physically healed. We will be comprehensively healed. And when we are, we will experience complete and unhindered freedom. We will be who God made us to be. We will be made whole. And when we are, we will look back at all the good times and all the bad times, whatever they may be, and we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul that they are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Until then, we have to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to receive our loving Father's discipline, and we need to strengthen one another because the Lord Jesus has come, and he most certainly will come again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, now we give, you, we give you thanks for everything that you have done in our doing, in history, and in our lives. Lord, help us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ to find strength and hope in everything we need to endure in this life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.